This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Uh, Don, we are, I am later in the show, going to be chatting with Dave Anderchuk, who was inducted, into, or not inducted, but announced that he would be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, first of all, you do not, I mean, he's a Hamilton guy, but you don't have to share the opinion that he should or shouldn't be. What was your thought on whether Dave Anderchuk should be in the Hall of Fame? I think it's wonderful. Um, I think he's more than deserving. And as I've said before, sometimes, like it's a great honor. So sure once you're in, you're in, and now he's in for the rest of his life. Unless you're Alan can't. Eagleson. He should be in for the rest of his life. I'm sure he's no <laughs> Alan Eagleson. But oftentimes people like you and I, and I'm sure Dave Anderchuk, who would, it's easy for me to say and not put words in his mouth, but when you stand there and look at some of the people that are in, and you look at some of the people that aren't in, you have a tendency to shake your head and go, this makes no sense. And it frustrates me with baseball and hockey um, when people, the so-called experts say, he'll get in. I think he's not going to get any better. He's retired. Yeah, but what do you mean he'll get in? Well, last year, Rogie Vashon got in, and I think the last time Rogie Vashon played was in the 76 Canada Cup. He played after that, I know, but I mean, that was that was the high point of his career, and that's, we're talking 40 years. They don't, they don't get better. They get more seasoned with time, and look at some baseball players. They get grandfathered in in the um, veterans category. Veterans category. Dave Andrew Truck should have been in there. When Clark Gillies went in. And Dino Cicerelli. Yeah, yeah, Dino Cicerelli. But I look at it, and I, I, I've said this before, it drives me absolutely bonkers when people start saying, yeah, but Clark Gillies won four Stanley Cups. Clark Gillies was lucky to be on those teams. He ran shotgun and was a tough guy for a lot of guys. It makes no sense. Um and Dave Anderchuk had to wait, but he'll savor it for the rest of his life. It's long overdue. Maybe we look at it differently because he's a Hamilton guy. Of course and, we do, but I don't make, I don't make I, any bones about that. No, we, I, we no, are going to be a little more... Well, some guy can quit writing about it in The Spectator anyway. Well, but we, no, we are going to be more aware of him. That's what's going to happen because he's a local guy. Okay. We're going to look closer at the numbers. Here's the, here's the two things that really stood out to me, and I wrote this today in the paper. If you, it's, you know, now that he's in... You can go back and read it regardless. But Reverse psychology. It worked well. The first thing is hockey guys, the people who run hockey, who draft players, who do all this stuff, they say over and over and over and over again, it's not how, it's how many. And here's a guy who's got more many than all but 13 people ever. And what's the thing they're saying why he's not in the Hall of Fame? Well, he didn't look all that exciting when he did it. He didn't do it in a dazzling way. So you'd rather have a guy... Who Phil Esposito? I, I I agree, but you you want to take guys who are I who produced much less, and put them in the Hall of Fame because they looked somehow more exciting. Uh, look, if I'm building a hockey team, I'll take the guy who scores a goal every couple games on average or every whatever, and pass on the guy who scores once every four games but looks really exciting doing it. That's the first thing. If you're going to do it by excitement, you can throw Rick Vive in. He scored 53 times for the Leafs and had a great big booming shot. Well, what about sh- Gary Lehman? Slap shot, yeah. He's, well, he did it once. But you're right. I mean, based on excitement. I mean, and, and, and in fairness, Dave Andertruck did not toe-drag an awful lot of people, but he went to the dirty areas 
and scored a lot of crappy goals that most NHLers in that area wouldn't score because they wouldn't go where he went to pay the price to do it. Again, it's not, they keep saying it's not how, it's how many, but clearly when it comes to the folks who were in the Hall of Fame for a lot of years, it has been how. If Dave Anderchuk had scored 640 goals by playing like Pavel Bure or playing like Timu Solani, now Timu Solani, no, no one's going to take a, I mean, he got in today, no one would argue for a second that he's going to get in. He was a fantastic player, but he also was a really flashy player too. I mean, not just because he was the finished flash. In in fairness, if Dave Anderchuk could skate like either one of those guys, he'd have been in, he'd have been a first ballot guy because he'd have got a thousand goals. Here's the other part that I find so interesting when people are arguing about Dave Anderchuk, and believe me, I've I've heard a lot of people today on social media, on radio stations, on TV, in papers. Not everyone agrees with the Dave Anderchuk getting into the Hall of Fame. Here's the other thing. The knock against him more than anything else is he played for a long time. So he was, uh-huh. some people call him an accumulator. He just picked up a lot of points because he played for so darn long. Well, the Hockey News, which is a respected hockey publication, most times. is saying Jerome McGinley is a surefire, no question, first ballot Hall of Famer. When Jerome McGinley finishes next year, he will have almost to the number the same amount of games played as Dave Andrichuk. And unless he has a much, 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 much better year than he's had for the last two, he will have fewer goals and fewer points. So how is it? But Jerome McGinley is a first ballot Hall of Famer. And if Andrichuk is not, in some people's eyes, because he accumulated points over a long time, how is McGinley suddenly the no-brainer to go in there for the same number of games and fewer goals and fewer assists. Uh, That part I'm looking at going, and it comes back to you are judging based on dazzle, based on aesthetics. This is not gymnastics. This is not diving. We don't have judges for style points. If you put the puck in the net, you win. And that's the part that I come back to. Daniel Alfredson, there were a lot of people thinking he was going in today. Thank goodness he didn't, not because I'm taking a shot at Daniel Alfredson, but when you look at his resume, it's not the equal of Mark Recchi who's going in. It's not the equal of Dave Anderchuk who's going in. It just isn't. It just isn't. The One of the things that I, the way I look at it, and I think it's age this comes with, is, you know, congratulations to the, the Board of Governors at the Hockey Hall of Fame for putting Dave Anderchuk in. Shame on the ones that missed the opportunity to do that. Because there were ample people that had an opportunity to put the great Dave Andrichuk from Hamilton into the Hockey Hall of Fame and missed it. But so, the, is this a surprise to you? Because as much as I'm thrilled that he's going in, and this is a new, at least a number of the guys on the committee are newer, this is the same Hall of Fame that knew that Pat Burns was dying and knew that Pat Burns was going into the Hall of Fame someday. They knew he was a Hall of Fame coach. There was no question... And for reasons that are inexplicable to me and almost come across as cruel, they said, no, not this year. We'll wait. Well, what are you waiting for? If, if, if the guy's about to die and you could put him in knowing he's going to go in, why would you wait? That, and, and the same thing was, uh, that was with Pat Quinn. Was it not? Did not Pat Quinn yeah. have to? It's, this is... And sometimes inexplicable 
group of people that make these decisions. Well, isn't that the same argument that, that you've pounded away on for a long time, thank goodness? You know, um, let's do something for Harry Howell so, when, so Harry Howell will know what's happened. Russ Jackson is no kid. You pounded away on that one. The one, and I don't know if we talked about it on the air, I've talked about it a lot, is an old friend of mine who was gravely ill, Gaylord Paulus. Mm. And shortly, great lacrosse player. Yep, the Gretzky of, uh, mm-hmm. of lacrosse, the great Mohawk, I believe was his nickname. Shortly after his death, they renamed the arena the Gaylord Paulus Arena. And at what age center. did he die? Gaylord would have Roughly. been around 70 probably. So he had not been playing lacrosse. Forever. So there wasn't like he was still active and you, well, we're not going to, we're going to wait. It there was no reason to wait and, and, and they could have done it while he was still alive. There was an opportunity to at least let him go out knowing he had that honor. What bloody good is it to give it to him afterwards? And I'll tell you, Same when, as Pat Burns. when Dave comes on later in the show, I'm sure he'll say this, but I talked to him earlier today for a story for the paper. And one of the things, the driving thing or one of them behind is that he wanted to have, he knew, he figured or guessed that probably someday he would get in with his numbers. I mean, I don't think he was being pompous. He was just saying, like, you know. I, He's not a pompous guy. Not at all. But he wa- if it was going to happen, he wanted it to happen while his parents were still around to be able to enjoy it. And thank goodness, that, and they both are. Roz and, and Julian are both in good health and, and great. But thank goodness that we don't have another example where inexplicably, for no good reason, we make a statement or we make a do something you know, the, 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 again, they missed it. You know what? They missed it for a lot of years. They got it now. They got it, and and they and he's not the only one. This this to me is the Hall of Fame class that corrects some mistakes. Mark Recchi should have been in the Hall of Fame. Yep, agreed. I go back again. I heard uh, another columnist in Toronto say today that it's the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Very Good, and that's a cute line. And I agree with him by and large, but the. Point I make is the uh, the goal of hockey is goals, or to stop goals. It's one or the other. You're either trying to score or you're trying to prevent. It's not style points. And if you have put more goals into the net, more pucks into the net than all but thirteen other people in hockey history, that's fame. It's pretty darn good. It's pretty darn great. Like I'd said earlier. And, Go ahead. No, Dave Vanderchuk, and here's the other thing. For those who, who've who said that he simply accumulated points, Dave Vanderchuk in four of his final five years scored 20 or more goals. So it's not like he hung around to collect garbage second assists and didn't do anything. He was still producing well into his 40s. God bless Gordy Howe. He was 50. I know. Accumulating. Well, you know, nobody would say, great point. Did anybody say Gordy Howe just stuck around and accumulated and... Maybe you know what every player in his last year just about does. Show me the that's the why they retire. Show me the guy who Shane Doan. Shane Doan. Wayne Gretzky was probably one year too long. I think he planned on retiring in nineteen ninety nine. Sure, I I understand. But you can look at Wayne. You can look at Wayne Gretzky and say you know his last year was not a Wayne Gretzky like year. Right. But there's there's hardly a player who goes out when he's at his best. I can't think of one who goes out at his best. So. There's always the idea, well, you stayed. Dave Vanderchuk got 20-plus goals in four of his final five years. That's not just being there. No, you're not limping out of the league, are you? You're not. You know, anyway, it's, um, 
it, it's an interesting one to me. We'll we'll chat with him later. But I, I the arguments, and there are lots of people making them. Go on social media. The arguments that somehow this is a an unfortunate or a weak class. I, you ask some general managers if they would want these guys on their team. You look at some of the guys on years gone by, a guy like Dickie Duff comes to mind, and some of the former Leafs that won a cup in 67 that are in there for the most part because they, they played on the last Leaf team to win a cup. You look at some of the stats on years gone by, boy, I mean, it's a good thing they can't push guys out. And that's what I talked about earlier about when when you're a Dave Anderchuk fan and you sit there and the most frustrating part is you look at say you, you won't let him in but you've let this list of guys in that couldn't carry his jock strap for most of their career. They maybe had one or two good years. It makes no sense. But this board got it right. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now, I don't know if you watched any of the CFL on their opening weekend. But this is a league that over the last few years has run into a lot of criticism about their instant replay system. And in the first two games of the year this year, you have two instant replay situations that are very difficult, I grant you, and I, I, I don't take a shot at the guys on the field. It would be very difficult for the officials on the field to make the call. But you that's why you have instant replay, is so you can then go back. If you're going to have it, and I hate instant replay, but if you're going to have instant replay, it's to get the call right. In both of these, it appeared that the ball was clearly loose out of the guy's hands and it was a fumble. And in both cases, it appears the instant replay Booth got it wrong, and then they come out with an explanation that, well, we're only going to change it if it's really obvious, if it's egregiously bad. What's the point, Don? I know that this is a topic that we've talked about before, but if instant replay is not resolving problems, why do we insist on having it? It's supposed to be conclusive. Right? Is the puck across the line? Did he catch it? Was his foot down before he went out of bounds? It's supposed to be conclusive. I mean, it has to overrule the on-field decision, baseball, whatever sport it is, they're all using it now. It has to clearly correct the issue on the field and show that, unfortunately, the official missed it. Maybe none of them were in a position where anybody could have got it right. Oh, I I don't, as I said, I don't blame the guys on the field. In those instances... I go get it right. I know you're not a fan of it, but get it right. If it's if somebody if somebody's been wronged on a big play and you can get it right because it was impossible for either guy to see it, then 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 get it right. But it's got to be conclusive. And if they're guessing, they should stop it. If you've got four experts on a panel who are paid observers of the game, have all played the game, and watch every down of CFL football. And they watch the replay, and they're befuddled by it, and think that it's wrong. There is no chance that you're making the case for the people at home that this is helping. And at that point, I argue that you should do what I've argued from the very beginning: let the officials on the field call the play. If it's if if the replay is only confusing issues, it's not doing anything to help your game. 
I think where they got into this instant replay stuff is when they started having cameras coming out, the player's yin-yang. And the CFL uh, doesn't have as many camera angles as a lot of the other sports. Field's bigger for one. Cost is another. But when hockey replays and CFL replays and the commentators are sitting there going, well, they just flat out got that wrong, that starts deteriorating the credibility of your game and your officials. So once you get embarrassed enough times, you got to go, boy, we got to fix this. This is happening far too often, and everybody watching the game and everybody in the building, because now they have big screens that are high def, like you can't, even the officials stand there going, holy crap, I screwed that one up, and there's no way to fix it. They had to do something. But the, the, when instant replay came into sports, the original idea was going to be, this is going to be simply to judge the things that are absolutes. Did the puck cross the line? There's no judgment call. There's no feel for the officials. But did the puck cross the line? Did the home run stay inside or outside of the foul pole? And then as you advance it, now we've got so many things that are judgment calls that are up, that the officials on the field may have had a feel for the game, but it's a judgment call. You can now go to an instant replay for a pass interference, which is a judgment call. And as soon as you do that, the instant replay thing, I think, completely breaks down because it's not, that's not what it was designed to do. It wasn't designed to slow the game down to 10 frames per second or whatever it is, and boom, boom, boom. No official can see that. No player can see that when it's being live. I do agree that if the instant replay starts to totally dehumanize the game itself and the official's role, we've got a problem. It, when it goes so far that, like some of these offsides, it's a toe drag as a, as a player's skate on the ice, is is uh, is a receiver's toe on the line or not on the line. And you, you're right, pass interference, when you're going to start taking the judgment out of the on-field or on-ice officials or on-court or on-diamonds, on-pitch, it's nuts. And it's gone too far. But they, they had to do something, like I said, is because the leagues themselves were getting embarrassed by the replays they were showing the fans in the stadium. And, and it, but now you're embarrassing, now the league's getting embarrassed by the replays that its replay booth is supposed to be fixing and isn't fixing. Well, they got to fix those guys. Get rid of them. <laughs> Get somebody in that can do the job. But rather than do that, the league came out with a statement that basically said, we're okay with the way they're doing this. They are advised to only overturn it if it's really obvious. And, you know, if you've been someone who's watched the NFL or other sports where, you know, in baseball now, where they'll have it, did the foot touch the bag before the ball touched the webbing of the glove? And it's down to, you know, and, and those are really, those are impossible yeah. to call. And even sometimes with the, with the super replay, you can't really tell. When, but when you're trying to break it down that much, and then your argument is, well, only if it's really egregious are we going to overrule. Well, that's the league bailing out. That's what it sounds like. That's, that's what they're doing. That they're was, bailing. That was Gary Bettman when Brett Hall's toe was in the crease. We're not. We're, that was what, Ken Hitchcock sending everybody on the ice to say, throw your sticks in the air, and this is over with. Exactly right. 100% right. Best but coaching that, move in a Stanley Cup playoff game in a long it, time. It may have been. 
And let's and what he should have had is his backup goalie grab the net and take it off the ice and give it to the fans. And so we can't start again. Let's make sure that there cannot be anything that happens here. Do, do what they do in basketball: cut the net off. Yeah, yeah that's right. Give them scissors. <laughs> we got a bunch of players this racing around the with. ice with scissors. No running with scissors, but you can skate <clears> with scissors. Yeah. I don't know. I I I come back to this over and over and over again. The instant replay is promised to make things perfect. And it never succeeds at that. There are one or two things that it can succeed at that, and that is, again, was it a foul ball or a home run? That you can tell by instant replay, and that, okay, fine. But even if you remember one of the things that launched instant replay in baseball about home runs, it didn't happen immediately, but it was a little kid named Jeffrey Meyer who leaned over the wall and grabbed a ball that the Baltimore Orioles, I think Derek Jeter hit it, and the Baltimore Orioles were complaining that their guy would have caught the ball, but it was interfered with. And the question was, did the kid lean his glove over the wall into the playing surface or not? And even if you go back and watch it now, it looks like his glove is in the field of play. But you can't, if you were watching that and you were the uh, the replay official today and that play was live, I don't know if you're calling that differently because I've seen the same play in Blue Jays games where they say, no, 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 that was okay. That's one that the umpires would almost assuredly have no chance of getting right. But the replay guys don't either. Well, the the replay guys have a better chance. They have a better chance. Because of where I suggested some of the cameras are now. But But it's inconclusive. The on-field guy... The mar- it would be a guess. It would be educated because they're good officials and they really get it. But unless they're standing underneath looking up, you're not going to know for sure. And if that's going to determine a playoff game or a playoff position for somebody, and you know, I, I don't get caught up in the fact that this is really important because it's going to put them out of the playoffs. Yeah, so could a bad uh, call in game two. Like, let's go back and review them all. Don't just worry about the ones that will put a team in and out of the playoffs. I mean, you know, lots of players and umpires when there's two teams that are playing or both 16, you know, they mail it in. You know, if they happen to miss one, they miss one. You, you know, officials take pride, but the players aren't busting their hump all the time, and it's, let's get this over with. we got 42 games to go. I don't know how this thing ever gets fixed, and, and I, I, I do worry that it starts to sound like a broken record, but the problem with this is it's not that perfection, which is what the desired outcome of this it becomes less perfect all the time. The more you break it down and demand perfection, the more it is almost impossible to achieve perfection. And and I look, it's, it becomes very difficult because fans at home now, if you take instant replay out, you've opened a Pandora's box. If you remove it now, it looks, all they're going to do is show on 4K TV how wrong the official was. And you go, well, that should have been replay. Well, I'll bet you there's a lot more conversations at the CFL head office this this morning asking where the people were at the Ticat game and the Argo game than they are the replays they may have botched. Well, the, I mean, that, I, that was a problem too. I was watching part of it, and I, I'm here to suggest you in, in Toronto there were more people in the Gay Pride Parade than there were at the Argo and Ticat game. Oh, I guarantee you there were. I guarantee you there were more people. Not watching, in it, in the parade. There, there were more people standing at Bucky's hot dog stand at the corner of Dundas and Young waiting to order a footlong than there were at the Argo or game. Or bump into Phil Kessel. 
And take away the fact that the Ticats were playing, where they had a bunch of probably, I don't know, four or 5,000 Ticat fans there. Wait till Friday night when Toronto hosts the BC Lions. You will be able, on Friday night, I'm convinced, in honor of the BC Lions, you will be able to set a hungry actual lion free in the stands, and he won't be eating until the third quarter. It'll take that long to find someone to eat. There will be no... Buddy there. And you know what the shame was? They looked, the Argos looked really good. They put on a good show. There was nobody there. And this is, anyway, we're on to a whole different topic. But no, it's, a, it's, that is a mess. But I said, the CFL got a lot more to worry about than buggering up a couple replays. When, it, it has things to worry about. When a franchise that only people in Toronto say, if it doesn't exist, the CFL's in trouble. They've been saying that for 30 years. If you don't have a successful Toronto franchise, this league's in trouble. I'm not convinced that's the truth. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We know what's happening in Ontario coming January 1st, and then the next January 1st, the minimum wage is going up to $14 and then to $15, and there are differing opinions, probably largely, I would guess, based on where you stand in the socioeconomic strata and where you're... Whether you own a business or work for a business or whether you make minimum wage or make more, but there's lots of debate about what this sudden and big increase in minimum wage is going to do. A lot of small businesses are saying this is going to cripple us. A lot of people are saying, no, this is going to be actually great because more money in the pockets of lower income people means more money to spend and that means more money in the economy. But then you go the other way and they say, yes, but if all these small businesses have to suddenly pay more, they're going to be letting people go and we'll have fewer people working. So yes, some people will have more money, but others won't. And then what about about inflation and on and on and on. It goes back and forth and back and forth. Well, the study that is getting a lot of interest today, Washington Post picked up this story, is published by the University of Washington. And that is University of Washington, not as in DC, as in Washington out West. And it is saying that when you go up, because they also in Seattle went up to $15 for minimum wage, that they study estimates the average low wage worker in the city lost $125 a month on average. Lost, not gained. That more people were actually further behind when minimum wage went up because of all kinds of reasons that I just touched on. Well, here to walk us through this, as he does every time we need to have something to do with finances or economics, because there is nobody better to do this. Uh, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, I'm, I'm surprised you have me on. I really thought tonight would be two hours of love fest for Dave Anderchuk. Finally, he's in the hall. This should be two hours devoted to that man, so I'm, I feel kind that you've allowed me into this. Well, he'll be on after you, so he'll uh, he'll be you'll, you're a great lead in. You're getting our ratings set up so that we can uh, then have the big finish. Okay, okay, I'll get an assist on the play. You absolutely will, and I don't know if one assist will get you into the Hall of Fame. It took Dave 640 goals in nine years, but we'll see what it does. Yes, well, I'm not counting on it. This study is, uh, as you well know, you've seen the the stories about this. It's generating all kinds of uh, hard feelings. I think that's a fair way to describe it on both sides because people are really, I think at this point, Marvin, really dug in. If you are a believer that the $15 minimum wage is the path to elevating the lower class, it doesn't matter what anyone says. They're an idiot if they disagree and you're right. And by the flip side, if you believe that raising this is going to kill small business 
anyone who disagrees with you an idiot and you're right. So, first of all, what does this study actually say that is going to happen? Is it is it in line with the other ones that basically says this is going to kill business? So, uh, just before I answer that, and that's a great setup, just before I answer that, let me say that in Seattle, uh, they have taken a very complicated route to increase their minimum wage. They started at $9 and a half, and they will end at over $15. Uh, depending upon the kind of industry you are, if you're a larger industry, if you're a smaller industry, some of this went faster, some of it is going slower, uh, and it's certainly controversial. In fact, it's taking a total of eight years to get all of these people up to that $15 minimum wage. So as this process is still unfolding, and it's not done yet, in fact, in 2016, the last year for which they had data, it was only at $13. It has not gotten to 15 yet. As this has been unfolding, everyone's saying, so, so is it working? Is it not working? How, what's happening here is kind of like you know, watching the doctor mid-operation. Is the patient getting better? Is the patient getting sicker? And I liken it to trying to measure the depth of water in a pool when there's a storm going on. There's so much wind and other things going on. I'm not sure this is really a good exercise to measure it. But conventional wisdom, and a study released last week by the University of California backed up conventional wisdom that said, yes, you put more money in the hands of poor workers, they, they spend more, it's good for the economy. In fact, employment levels didn't go down, they went up slightly. This is a wonderful thing to happen. Today's study came up with something different. Now, you're, you're right that says that the low-wage workers lost $125, but let me try to put it in some context. First headline, the University of Washington study also confirmed no employment lost during this period. So the number of jobs stayed constant during this time period. But what happened was, for those people who were earning just at the minimum wage level, that $13 wage, you got fewer hours. You became more of a part-time employee. So if you're working 30 before, now you're only working 20, 10 hours less at $13 an hour. That's that $130, $125 different. Uh, and they're saying, you see, you thought you were helping them. Sure, we didn't lose any employment, but those people who were working got fewer hours. Now, another headline in the study, though, was that the mix of jobs, those at $13 an hour and those at $19 an hour, just another arbitrary point along the scale, there was actually a shift. They saw workers, uh, or excuse me, they saw companies bringing in more people at the $19 wage than the 13 So if you stayed in your $13 wage, your fate went down. But they actually saw a shift. They saw more companies doing this. Argument being here, well, if I've got to pay more for a worker, I'm going to get a better qualified worker, someone who's going to give me more value in my organization. So let me stop you for one second then. Does that mean then that if you are someone who has been, you've gone through university or, or college or whatever, you've tried to upgrade your skills, but you know what? I just can't find a job. The, the, this might suggest those opportunities will be better for you, but if you're one of those people who partied all through high school and dropped out in grade 12 and figure I'll just go and find, and now, look, oh, glorious day, I get to have a huge raise, those chances are going to actually diminish for you. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what they're saying. Those people who could grow into a job, it seems that smaller companies aren't prepared to let you grow into the job. So you either bring a skill set that gets you the $19, or if your only skill set's good for the very minimum wage, you only get that and you get fewer hours. But there's a third confounding factor, and that's, of course, why everyone's up in arms over this. Seattle itself has not been static during this period. The way I can liken it, if you can remember what Calgary was like, Oh, let's say, uh, let's say a decade ago when 
If you went out there and worked for Tim Hortons, you got a $1,000 signing bonus if you stayed for five weeks. Things were booming on the oil patch, and oh, my God. Well, that's kind of what's been going on with Seattle. So there are people who are arguing, you know, you're trying to measure this change in minimum wage when the Seattle economy itself is booming and people are able to get more jobs and better jobs and move themselves up, you're not really measuring the effect of the minimum wage. You're just measuring the effect of a buoyant economy. You're not making an apples-to-apples comparison. So this is the great thing about economic theory. You've got you know 20 years' worth of research that says it should benefit. Someone comes along and says, my research says something different. Of course, they're getting the headlines because it defies conventional wisdom. And if, you're, if I'm trying to tell you what is the truth i'm telling you it's too early to tell we really need to get the full thing implemented to allow all these companies time to react certainly if we think a look here in ontario minimum wage is going to go up october 1st and then just two months later on january 1st of 2017 2018 excuse me it's going to go up again and then again on january 1st 2019 these are very fast changes in in 14 months companies are trying to figure out what they're doing you're absolutely right Smaller businesses do not have the profit margins built into them. And I'm talking about, you know, a, a little restaurant or a little retail store or, you know, a gasoline station. They don't have the profit margins on that level to simply absorb these higher wages. So there is absolutely no doubt that there's going to be some price increases passed on to us, whether that's going to take the price of your cup of coffee from $2 to $2.25 or $2.50, we don't know yet, because each company has to kind of work through this on their own. We think, at least initially, they're not going to suddenly lay everybody off or, or terminate people or even slash their hours. They're going to try to keep the same level of employment and pass the costs on to you and I. Some companies will be better able to do that. Others may suffer. And then when that happens, they may say, well, I'm going to have to bring those prices down. I'm going to have to eat some of this. How do I eat it? Well, it may be by getting rid of workers. It may be by changing their hours. And we'll eventually hit an equilibrium. When you throw this big rock into the pond, there are so many ripples. And depending upon when you measure the ripple, you'll get a different effect. I think it'll take five or six years to see the churn that's caused by this rock in the pond to calm down enough that we'll really know in the long run does it make a difference? Right now, I think the results out of Seattle are telling us exactly what you'd expect. It's a mixed blessing. Well, some and people C- are benefiting, some aren't. And Marvin, you also pointed out, uh, if I heard you right, that Seattle's growth of the minimum wage up to the $15 is not only over eight years, but it's at a different rate for big businesses and for small businesses. Right. and then Which is very different from what we're doing here. And then when we say big businesses, it is this is also just a Seattle-only initiative. The state of Washington is also in the process of moving its minimum wage to around $13. So now look, if I'm a company and I sell only in Seattle, think of a restaurant that only serves Seattle, that's one thing. But suppose I'm a manufacturing concern and I do things across the state, you know, my ability to cope might be different than somebody else's ability. And it's hard to tease out the effect when you have a community that is so dominant like Seattle in the Washington economy. I'm not saying they shouldn't attempt to measure it. I think they should. But I think we have to take each study as just another dip of the stick in the pool, and let's start adding them together to see what the effects are. We've had one good, one bad. Let's see two, three, five more to see if we can start to have a trend line here to tell us. It is certain, it is absolutely certain, that what's going to happen in Ontario is going to send little shock waves through our industries. No doubt about it. This is a big movement in a very short period of time, roughly a 25% increase in that minimum wage over 14 months. It's going to have huge impacts. 
But will they ultimately prove out to be good or bad? Just too hard to tell at the moment. Because it, it does sound like, for better or for worse, it sounds like the folks in Seattle who are undertaking this project are, I'm trying to think of a better word, but are doing this with maybe a little more finesse, that they are giving a little more time for this thing to shake out rather than bludgeoning everybody with a hammer. Yeah, that's certainly true. I think you're talking about from the political standpoint, yes. the people who passed the motions, they were trying to let this happen in the right direction, but a little more slowly. The argument, of course, if you, I'm, if I'm a poverty advocate, is we're already well behind. We've got to play catch up as quick Fair as enough. possible. If you if you talk to Tom Cooper, for instance, who talks about the, the poverty roundtable, he'll actually tell you fifteen dollars isn't the right number. It should be seventeen dollars. That's not really the living wage at fifteen dollars. So you know, I think you can always find people across the spectrum. This is too fast. It's too slow. It's too much. It's not enough. I think the, but we are doing an interesting thing, and I think what we have to do is try to watch this. If I'm Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals, I'm going to see that are there certain industries that are being helped or hurt by this, and maybe I'm going to have to introduce a little something for them. Maybe I'm going to have to change their marginal tax rates to give them back a little cash so they can pass it on to their workers and allow that to happen. We do know, and the study out of Washington State today, because I checked it did talk about how people spend the money and this is another i'll call it good news about this even if you had fewer hours at a higher rate same thing though you're not saving this money this is not money that's going to leak out of the economy those people who earn at the minimum or just above the minimum they spend it all they do not save it so if i can increase their wages and add them 10 20 percent they are going to turn around and spend it buy more food, buy better clothes, buy clothes more frequently, or even eat out at a restaurant a little more frequently, this is not going to go into RESPs and RRSPs and et cetera. It is money that will go back in the community. So we do expect there to be an inflationary impact, probably on the order of seeing the Ontario's inflation rate hit maybe 25 even as high as 3% for a period of about a year and a half as this churns through the system. Couple more things quickly. The fact that um, it's happening so much more quickly here, we're already seeing, at least anecdotally, at least I am anecdotally, you go into a McDonald's now, there's a lot more of those touch screen order yourself. I go into a lot more stores and there's checkout yourself. Um, would, is that not a sign that, you know what, if we can find roles for technology to replace humans. Yeah, there's a big capital cost up front, but boy, in the long run, no benefits, no hourly thing. That to me looks like one of those things that concerns me of the place that technology, we can start now seeing a lot more places thinking, if I can replace a human with technology and I don't have minimum wage to pay, that seems like a pretty good idea would be, would go with the thought. And we're seeing that already. Yes, although we're seeing that with the minimum wage the way it is. So let me give you a different example. It hasn't to do with the minimum wage, but we have a lovely company here called ArcelorMittal DeFasco. They produce more steel than they ever have before with truly a fraction of the workers. At one time, nearly 15,000 people worked at ArcelorMittal DeFasco. Today, it's around 3,000, 12,000 fewer workers, and yet they're turning out more steel than ever before. Why is it? Well, of course, it's technology. And we've seen this in the last 30 years, all kinds of automation not just in manufacturing, but in the service sector. You talked about the, the checkout counter, but the ATM or the online banking, it's a way for people to not deal with a human being. 
and companies are taking those out of the equation. So really the question is, if I increase minimum wage, is that going to be an incentive enough to speed up the rate of replacement? Maybe it won't happen in the first 18 months or two years or even three years, but am I giving businesses even more of an incentive to get rid of workers? And, and that's, the, that's the big question, right? That's the, the whole theory behind this. Um, just before I let you go, there is a uh, Frank emails in and asks, we have seen increases in minimum wages before, and he says, "Isn't can't you look at the historical precedent to determine how this is going to work and whether this is going to have an impact? And I, I'm guessing the answer to that question, Marvin, I want you to answer this. This is a uniquely huge jump in the minimum wage, so it's really not exactly the same as looking what happened before, or is it? Right. So let's break that into two halves. If I look at the past, every increase in, in minimum wage, we have not seen any significant change to employment. We've not seen any significant change to the hours of people working. It's really had a very minimum impact. But the changes in the past have been a minimum change. You know, the, the minimum wage is scheduled to go up to 11.60 in October. It's 11.40 right now. We're talking about a 20 cent increase on an $11 wage. It's, it's really very small, only about 2%. This is much more. This is a 25%. We've never had an increase in minimum wage in this province of that size. That's what's making it hard to measure. We do know other jurisdictions in North America are in the process of moving towards this, including Alberta. So far, the feedback, with the exception of this University of Washington study, suggests that it, it, we've not seen any major changes. That's why this study is so important. It stands out in comparison to the others as the first one to say maybe there isn't a complete benefit to all of this. And is last thing, is there... If not minimum wage, is there any place we can look to where we can see 25% wage increases in some other sector and see what impact that have? What did companies, if they've had to give this, if they've if they've settled for this with a union, even if it's not 25, let's say it was a 10%. I'm sure somewhere along the way, there's been a union that settled for 10%. Did 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 that lead to massive cuts? Yeah, you're too young to remember, but back in the 70s when Pierre Trudeau was prime minister, we had annual inflation of 10 11%, so you would see an annual wage increase. But you see the extra wage was offset because the company would raise prices, they would generate more revenue. We've never seen an increase of this size when the economy itself is only growing at 1% to 2%. So it's that gap between inflation and the wage increase that uh, says this we're into some uncharted territory. But I'm going to still stick my neck out and say, on balance, I think there's a lot more good that's going to come of this from bad once we let everything settle down. But that'll take three to four years to find out. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. For eight straight years, this day would roll around on the calendar and we would sit and wait to hear that my next guest was being inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And eight straight years, nothing happened. So some of us, many maybe, I'm not sure, but some of us certainly were maybe hoping that we weren't going to have the same thing happen this year, but thinking it probably maybe possibly could. And then at 3 o'clock this afternoon, we find out that Dave Andrichuk, Hamilton's Dave Andrichuk, former Hamilton Husky, Stanley Cup champion is now a member, or will be anyway, come November of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Mr. Andrew Chuck joins me now. Sir, congratulations. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Yeah, what a great day today. And you're right. I mean, you know, I guess you wait every year and hope your name gets called and 
you know, fortunately this year it happened. Well, I, I'm thrilled for you. It's fantastic for you. It's fantastic for Hamilton. It's great for your parents. We'll talk about all that stuff. I'm also personally thrilled that I don't have to write one more put Dave Anderchuk in the Hall of Fame column. Uh, love writing for you, but man, oh man, it gets tiring after a while to have to make the same argument and having apparently no one down there at the Hall of Fame listen. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Where and, were you? Know, to be honest with you, like it's uh, one of the things is, you know, we're not going to have to worry about this next year, right? Like, you and I are not going to have to worry about it. Where were you when you found out? I was actually, uh, I was, obviously, I'm in Tampa. I was actually driving from my um, office in the Emily Arena to uh, the airport. I was picking up my wife. She was coming back from Buffalo. And uh, I got the call from Randy McDonald. Uh, I pulled over on the side of the road to get the call. I saw a 416 number, and here was Lanny uh, giving me the information. And what did he say? Lanny basically said uh, to me that, you know, for what you've done on and off the ice, you are most deserving to be an NHL Hall of Famer, and congratulations. And I was like, holy crap, this is <laughs> awesome. You must have, Dave, over the years, because this was the ninth time you were eligible, you must have imagined that call before and maybe what you would say. How, did the did all those imagining things? Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And did it come out I like mean, you thought but, it would? But, no, God, no. God, no. <laughs> and it's, it's like anything else, you know. Uh, you know, you wait, you wait, you wait, but you have no idea what's actually going to happen when it you know, when, when the call comes. So, um, I, um, I was told, not that I was shocked. Obviously I'm not shocked because, you know, you're hoping this call comes, but at the same time it was, it was, you know, obviously so cool. I mean, first off it's Lanny, you know, I, uh, I was with him in the hundredth anniversary for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, I got to meet him and, you know, and chat with him and spend some time with him. And for him to give me a buzz and, and make this call, it was, it was so cool. This, um, you were, I think, as I understand it, you were still on the side of the road after taking that call that you called home to your mom and dad, right? Correct, correct, yes. I did not leave the side <laughs> of the road. I called my mom and dad right away. Uh, they were the first call. And how did they, they respond? How did they respond? Um, you know, my dad was in tears. Um, I think that, um, you know, all the years that have gone by, I think it kind of probably hit my dad. My mother obviously said that she knew already, (laughs) (laughs) but my dad was, uh, super excited and, you know, really, um, you know, when you think about where I've come from, where I've been, where, you know, to get to this point. You know, I would have never done it without my parents, and uh, my parents deserve a lot of credit for it. And this is not just about me. It's about my whole family, and, and for them, uh, it, was, it was a huge moment. Well, Dave, it's also um, great that, it, I mean, it would have been great if it happened first year or second year or whatever, but the fact that it happens while your, par- your parents are both healthy, your parents are both still with us, thankfully, uh, your parents are both still 
uh, very coherent. I mean, they're they're all those good things. It's great that this happens while they can enjoy this as well as you. Because there's a, I'm guessing there's a lot of guys who have gone into the Hall of Fame and don't have that. I totally agree. Totally agree. And that's the one thing that um, I really wanted to happen was that my parents could, you know, uh, could be part of it. Um, uh, you know, and, you know, let, let's face it, you know, the numbers are there. I figured that eventually I'm going to get in though. They have to put me in, but I really wanted my parents to be part of it. And, uh, you know, with my mom and dad, um, there's, <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of sad. It's, it's kind of scary to say that, you know, they're still coherent, but at the same time, you know, I really wanted them to be part of it and they will be. Uh, which they should be because uh, they were huge factors in why I am who I am. And again, I mean, I, I hope that wasn't a, an insulting thing to say, but there are a lot of guys who, you know, it, they don't get to share this with their family. And, and you talk about, I'm guessing there's probably not a hockey player alive, maybe or very few anyway, who don't get there without mom or dad driving to the rink or mom or dad paying for hockey and all those things. When you talk about it's a family thing, it really is. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. And, you know, it's not just about my parents. I mean, I sent a text message to my sisters immediately, and I said to them, you know, this is about us. This is about, you know, all of us as a family. I mean, the sacrifices that you had to make by going to all the tournaments and, you know, everything else as, as a kid that I had to do, you know, this is about us, and this is the celebration for all of us. So, Yes, definitely that, you know, both my parents, my two sisters, um, this is a celebration about all of us. Dave, you said that you, you expected with your numbers that you were eventually going to get in. I, I wonder about that, though, because you do. I mean, you your numbers haven't changed in the last nine years that I know of. Uh, you stopped playing and you had 640 goals in the regular season, and I believe that's the number you still have. Did you ever sit there? on a day like today when they were announcing the Hall of Fame and say, what am I missing? Why am I not in that class? It had to cross your mind once in a while. Yes, yes Scott. I mean, I, I mean, I, let's be honest here. I mean, there's, there's some factors why I didn't get in, and I'll give you those factors why, why I believe I didn't get in. I don't know if this is true or not. But, you know, let's face it, I have no um, international experience. You know, there's no Olympics. There's no, uh, you know, gold medals. That didn't happen. Um, And as far as the NHL is concerned, there's no NHL awards. There's no, you know, uh, Art Rosses. You know, there's, there's, there's no trophies that have been given to me. And that's what I believe has kept me out. Uh, I am very thankful that the committee has decided that they're going to bypass all that and put me in. And um, to me, it's, it's what a great day it is. How much, if anything, and and, uh, I mean, those points you just made, I, I think have a lot of validity. Another one that I look at is hockey. We talked about this last hour here on the show. Hockey guys always say it's not how it's how many, and yet, a lot of times, the knock that I would hear when Hall of Fame time would come around was guys would say, well, Dave didn't always necessarily look like a Hall of Famer. You didn't go end-to-end and deke around guys. You weren't toe-dragging people. You put the puck in the net all the time, but it, it wasn't always highlight real stuff. Do you think that had any impact? 
Well, um, that being said, um, I, I still believe that, you know, the bottom line is, is that, you know, you score goals and you do what you got to take to score goals. So, uh, I'm very, I'm very, very proud of the games played. To me, that's the biggest, that, that's the biggest thing is, uh, you know, the 1600 and whatever games it is, uh, to, to endure, um, NHL hockey for that long. Uh, I'm proud of that. And I, I, I truly believe that the committee has looked at that and has, has recognized that, you know, the game's fight is, is a major factor. Mm. Do you still wear the scars? Do you wake up in the morning and feel those 1,639 games? <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. But at the same time, uh, I'm so proud of it. I really am. I'm very, very proud of it. And even the players that have played around me, they understand that. Um, I think a lot of those guys, you know, we've had multiple guys come into this, into into Tampa, and we've talked about, you know, games played and what you've done and how it means. And, you know, even a guy like Vinny LeCavier that just retired, like, I mean, you know, he, he is in awe. And I continued to play, you know, at 40 years old. Well, you made a wise decision, first of all, even in your retirement, to live in Tampa where it's nice and warm rather than, say, in Buffalo. Because those winters, you might have felt those 1,639 games a lot more if you were living up here in the cold winters. Um, Have you been to the Hall of Fame lately to walk around and look at the plaques of the inducted members? Is that something that a guy who's hoping to get in one day does? Or do you stay away until you get that call? I have not been to the Hall of Fame since 1993. And what was, what, um, what you mean while you were playing here or in I Toronto? Was playing in Toronto, yes. I have not been there since then. Now, we did have a couple of charity events there when I was with the Leafs, but I have not been there since then. So I have no idea what it actually looks like or uh, what maybe is a good thing. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I haven't I haven't experienced the Hall of Fame yet. Intentionally, you didn't come back, or it just never fit into your schedule. No, just never, never had no desire to do it, Scott. Like I mean, I I really had no desire to come back to uh, to look at the Hall of Fame. You know, it's 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 not intentionally, or just I didn't have enough desire to do it. All right, so I'm going to let you go, but I got one more uh, that I got to ask because you you have maybe the most unique trifecta now to try and have to sort through winning a Stanley Cup getting a statue of yourself in front of your own arena well four having an arena named after you or getting in the Hall of Fame put those in order of best to worst but not worst I mean none of them are bad best to not quite I, I still I still believe the arena in my name is so so very cool for a guy that's still alive um you know yes Having a statue and getting into the Hall of Fame are very cool, but you know to be in Hamilton and that's my hometown, and to have an arena named after me is, you know, I I uh, I was back up there three weeks ago and I drove by just to drive by, just to drive by. It was it was awesome. And where does the Stanley Cup compare to all those things? Well, the Stanley Cup is awesome and it is obviously propelled me in my career to get to the level I'm at 
Uh, it was obviously extremely hard to achieve. Uh, I think there's a, a ton of players that would agree with me. Um, and here in Tampa, uh, I think they'll they'll attest that it's uh, it's a it's a huge accomplishment that uh, our team in 04 should be very very proud of. Just before I let you go, tell the story if you do, if you because I know you've told it before, but um, maybe even on here, you have to walk by your statue most days to get into your office, don't you? I do, I do. I park, I walk by. Um, I have actually, I've actually run into people that are taking pictures and I've stood by it just because they don't, you know, they it it, it is very very cool. You ever photo bomb and, you somebody know, just uh, doing it? Yeah, I just walked by. Hey, by the way, that's me. <laughs> by the way, that's me. And you know, um, you know, I I, I got to thank Mr. Vinick and you know his whole group. You know, to put that statue outside to recognize that old fourteen is awesome. It is. Uh, it is a great day. We'll remember this day because uh, you, I was thinking that we haven't done this very often. That to have a Hamiltonian, a born and raised Hamiltonian, go into the Hall of Fame. The first one that I can remember was Dick Irvin Sr. Many people don't even know he was from here. Then you got Harry Howell, nineteen seventy nine. Last year, Pat Quinn, and now Dave Anderchuk. Dave, congratulations! What a great day and uh, great for you. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much for the, for, for, you know, everything you've done. Uh, I don't know if we need to talk next year when, you know, that time comes again. You know, <laughs> just think of it. You don't have to write another article. We may just call to say, hey, remember those days when we always had to push for you to get in? We can always look back and have a chuckle about it. Dave, listen, thanks. For, appreciate the time. Yep, you got it. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.